Well, it was mentioned that I'm heading out to Hume later on this afternoon, and you probably didn't get word of this, but since cruising has taken over our culture, Hume, of course, has a cruise. So if anybody wants to go, I think it's New England with Hume, uh, you can go hang out with the Hume Lake folk on a cruise ship. Uh, it doesn't get more opposite than Hume Lake than being on a cruise ship, but you can go join them. Uh, I'm sure it's part fundraiser, but mostly I think it is part camp for adults. So uh, by all means, if, you're, if you like cruises, check that one out. There are some other cruises uh, that are pretty well known. There's the Gaither Cruise, if you want another Christian cruise. Families, there's the Disney Cruise. It will cost you eight times as much but it will be ten times as much fun, hopefully. <laughs> I've heard it is worth it. Every time I price it out, I think, wow. Um, but I've heard it's worth it. There's an Alaska cruise. I'd love to take one of those someday. The Hawaii cruise, you can go on a, on a actually relatively cheap cruise down to Mexico out of L.A., short cruises. It's amazing if you realize how much a hotel room costs, how cheap it is to get an all-inclusive cruise. But then there's also some extreme ones. A couple years ago, on the 100th anniversary, there was a Titanic cruise. I don't know why you would want to get on the boat. But there was a Titanic cruise. They all decked out as if it was 100 years ago, minus the sinking. Um, and they enjoyed Titanic. They did make it back. And, and I only partly am choking about that. I'd, I'd be a little scared of some extreme cruises. For those of you who are into horror, there's a Saw cruise. Again, I don't know why you'd want to go on that one. There's the Elvis cruise. That's not really surprising. This isn't mine. I'm a Star Wars guy, but there's a Star Trek cruise. That'd be fun. Be interesting, but that'd be fun. Probably the most extreme one, though, was one that departed in 2002, and it is still going, apparently. It's called the World Cruise. It'll cost you millions of dollars and you never come home. That is your house. They just keep going around and around and around the globe. Sounds kind of cool, but imagine if you didn't like your neighbors. <laughs> That'd be brutal. At least here you can drive away from them. You're stuck on a small ship if you are on the World Cruise and you don't like the person next door or even the next side of the ship. No matter how creative get, though, no cruise will be as crazy as Noah's. More than a year, no attendance, everybody else dies, and you have to take care of a brand new zoo. That's a, that sounds fun at first, minus the death part. But if you've ever been behind the scenes of a zoo, there's a lot of work that they have to do just to maintain things. Turn to Genesis 6. Verse 9, that's where we're going to start, and we're going to hop around for a little bit in chapter 6, but then I'm going to pick up, and I'm just going to read a long chunk of the flood. You know the story, but it's important to remember, especially in light of Luke 1, nothing is impossible with God. Genesis 6, 9, this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah was righteous, he was blameless among his people, and he walked with God. Those matter, that's what the verse is saying. But what does it mean when the Bible calls someone righteous? Noah, Joseph, Job, Mary, Joseph in Genesis, by the way, not Joseph with Mary. That's who I was referencing. There's other people as well. The Bible, every once in a while, says that someone is righteous. 
And it points them out. And especially in the Old Testament, this is pre-cross. It points out that they were righteous people. But what does that mean? Well, last week I said that Lot was not righteous. But as I was reminded this week, 2 Peter 2, verse 5 through 8, you can look that up at home if you want to. It says that he is or was righteous. And I think it helps us understand what Scripture means and also why I wasn't entirely wrong, even if I might have overreached in that statement. Let's start with Lot's sin and what I was getting at. If you know the story, this will be familiar. If you don't, go read this. When I tell my students this, they're shocked and appalled, rightfully so. But in Genesis, it points out that Lot offered his daughters to the crowd, not exactly father of the day moment. When he leaves Sodom, he rejects God's direction And he offers a different city. God allows it. And then he finally gets too scared of those people. And he ends up hiding out long-term in a cave away from everybody. Just him and his two daughters. And he's there long enough to become drunk and ultimately impregnate both daughters. This is not what we want our kids to grow up into as righteous, good people. Lot was a sinner. Nevertheless... What the Bible's getting at is he stood in contrast to his neighbor's rebelliousness against God. He did stand in contrast with them. He had a relationship with God. Earlier in Genesis, it mentioned that people called upon the name of of God or walked with him. And it's in contrast to Cain's lineage and other people that were rejecting God. And Lot is one that is walking with God. He's failing and stumbling all of his life. And yet, there's something different about him, as with Noah. Ultimately, Lot was declared to be in right standing with with God, and that is God's grace. Even though Lot is anticipating the cross... Is because of the cross that he can be declared righteous and be in good standing with God. It is not that Lot was perfect. Genesis records his imperfection. With Noah, well, ultimately we'll see next week that he wasn't perfect either, but so far he seems pretty good. Similarly to Lot, Noah stands in contrast to the people of his time. He has a relationship with God. He walks with God. It's probably figurative there at that point, but He's in community with God, and and he will show himself to be obedient to God in building the ark and in walking onto the ark. He actually doesn't do that much work other than building the ark, but he climbs aboard when it didn't really necessarily seem obvious that that was going to be important other than God had said. This doesn't mean, again, though, that he is without sin which will become obvious next week, but multiple times in this passage and elsewhere in Scripture, he's declared to be in right standing with God. Genesis 6.8, Genesis 6.9, Genesis 6.22, Genesis 7.1 and 7.5, and elsewhere in Scripture. So Noah is different from the people around him. He is not perfect. That is not what it's getting at, even though it uses the word blameless. doesn't mean he's blameless his whole life. It says that God's grace is upon him. Later on, it will talk about Noah in the Bible as a righteous man. He is, but that doesn't mean perfect. Job was not perfect. Mary was not perfect. But they were all people of faith. 
that when God came and told them the impossible, their response first was reality. Mary, wait a minute, God, I know how this thing works. Disney made it clear the stork brings the baby. I know how this works. No, she, she knew. And God says, it's okay. Nothing's impossible with me. Trust me. When you see the spectacular, trust me. Genesis 10 through 13. This is going to be a bit of a review from last week. If you missed it, uh, just go check it out. I'm not going to give everybody the same sermon right now, but quick, I'll read it in a quick summary. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people in the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And if you missed last week, here's the review. God is just in the wrath that he shows in the flood. And we dare not underestimate the evilness of sin in our lives or in others' lives. What is about to unfold is brutal and righteous. If you don't just think about the pretty rainbow in the end, if you think about the horror that is happening on the earth, it is tough to call this good, but it is right. And by the way, whatever horror is about to take place is still less horrific than what was happening in the lives of people. Because it is at the hands of a loving and just God instead of the hands of an evil group of people, humanity. Genesis six fourteen through 22. Here are the crazy numbers of the flood. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that is the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You're to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Here are the numbers, 450 feet by 75 feet by 45 feet high. Just to put that in perspective, that is a little longer than the length of this building. It's roughly the width of this room, and it's about the height of the church, if you include the steeple, maybe a little above that. So it's big. It's not as wide as I thought, but it's big. Imagine building it. That'd be fun. little family project. Next time you're bored for the family and you think the kids are watching too much TV, playing too many video games, just get a bunch of wood, go out to your backyard, you and your three kids. If you only have one kid, no kids, two kids, grab some neighbor friends or something and just build a big boat. People will look at you funny. I would look at you funny. Doesn't, especially in the middle of a drought right now. Really? We have 
We have a forest fire, I look, or wildfire. I looked up, I'm like, great, smoke. How close to that is that to the 101? And am I going to have to take the 166, which I hate? I don't like going that way. We're in fire season, not rainy season. Some more numbers. Two of every kind, that word matters, we'll come back to it, of animal, plus seven pairs of particular animals. We're going to have a lot of animals. Maybe not as many as you think. Kind matters. But a lot. Plus, there's no number on this, but all the food. All the food for everything. Everybody, everything, every animal. Got to gather the food. But here are the numbers that are really crazy. They will be there for more than a year. They go on for a week first with nothing happening. Think about that. When was the last time your family getting ready for the big trip went and sat in the car for a week? And made it. Driving for a week is bad enough. Sitting in the driveway for a week would be the end of everybody. Seven days of waiting, 40 days of flooding, we know that one, but then 150 days of sitting water. It's just soaked. And then 150 days of draining, and then 40 days of drying. At least if I got all those numbers right. Over a year. They're sitting on the boat for over a year. That is a cruise that I do not want any part in. I love animals. I think a zoo crew would be great if you got to get off the boat. If you had handlers there to take care of them, let me come and take a picture with the tiger. But then somebody else feed it and clean up after it. Because I got two dogs and I already get tired of that. In all of this, Noah only needs to build the ark, climb in, and then pass, wait, not pass out. He has to pass out the food. He's going to pass out later, unfortunately. That's next week. But that's all he has to do. Build it and climb aboard. If he'd have stopped there, he'd have been more blameless. God is the one that brings the animals. Noah didn't do that. He didn't have to go collect them. He brought them. I guess that's another thing the Noah movie got right, actually, is the animals came to them. God shuts them in. Noah didn't even close the door. Apparently, he was born in a barn. He didn't close it. God closes the door. God brings the rain, but most notably, God preserves the boats. They aren't saved because Noah is the first master boatman. They, they were saved because God protected them. You may have seen great pictures of the ark, and I don't mean to imply they're wrong. There's some cool ones out there, and you'll notice the keel or the thing up on, on top that's part sail to keep it situated right. Here's why it doesn't matter if it had that or not. God is the one preserving the boat. It could have been through construction. He might have told Noah that. We don't have any indication. But ultimately, what makes it through this kind of flood, the answer is God. Maybe there's no indication of this, so don't let me back up. Not maybe. But what if another neighbor had seen Noah and said, hmm, sounds like a good idea. There had to be at least one other crazy person on the planet, right? They see that and they're like, good idea. Noah's getting mocked. I'll get mocked. They build a little boat. They're not saved just because they build a boat. Somebody could have had the great, I don't think they did, but somebody could have had the great idea of copying Noah. Maybe a guy who had 20 sons saw Noah and said, I can build it bigger and faster because, come on, guys, that's what we do, right? 
I can build a bigger car. I can make it go faster than yours. I can drive it better than yours. It's Father's Day. Let's face it. We want the shirt that's a little brighter than the father next door. We want to be seen as who? That's NASCAR, by the way. I went faster going left every time. I went faster. That's the Olympics. That's us. But even if they had, the key is that God preserves. Noah didn't do anything but build it in obedience, and that matters, and then climb aboard. Before reading the full account that's coming up, I'm not going to read the full account. It's three chapters long, but I will, will read quite a bit. A few other points of interest. Verse 18, at least my interest. Verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. God covenants with Noah. God's word is on the line. That's the issue. God said, I will save you. And God is faithful in that. The other thing, though, is this is one of the key points in a chiasm or in a chaotic structure. It's a literary device with a series of points leading to a central point and then a series of points out of that that mimic or mirror that. And you can see it. There's parallel words. Sometimes they're flipped around to make a point. The key, though, is that middle point. It's not that the others aren't important, but that middle point is the point. So it starts at one place, and it kind of goes in, and you'll, if you see a picture, it makes it look like half an X or a greater sign, a V on its side. And they actually have, in this account, People have come up with as many as 29 points, or actually even I saw one that was 31. I'd encourage you to go Google it. Flood chiasm. See what pictures pop up. It's pretty cool. And with the 29-point one, there's 14 points leading in to one point and 14 points back out that all, that all kind of have a connection with the one above. I'll give you three. I'm, just, I'm, I'm all about simplicity. I'll give you three. 618, there's a covenant to protect Noah. I just read it. In 8.1, it's the middle point of the story, it points out that God remembers Noah. I'll read that in a bit. God remembers Noah. That's the key. God's word is on the line. God remembers Noah. And Noah walks off the boat. He remembers. God saves. God redeems. God restores. And then in verse 9.8, there's a new covenant. God, again, covenants to protect. That's with the rainbow. So there's a covenant, there's a bunch of other points, there's that middle point, God remembered. It isn't like God forgot them ever. That's not what that verse is saying. What that verse is saying is Noah's still floating alive because God remembered him. And now it's time to drain the planet. But he doesn't remember him and then he walks on water. That's a different guy later. He said he remembers him and he doesn't die. In 7.3, I mentioned kinds. And also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. This actually pops up in Genesis 1, when God creates. It doesn't define what kind is, but it matters. Noah will take on the ark one of every kind. So what animals are on the ark? Does that mean we have every exact 
I don't, I don't even know which specific scientific word to use right now, but if you, go in the, if you go in the animal store, the pet shop, there we go, in the mall, they'll have 10 dogs in there. Does that mean each of those breeds was on the ark? Well, we know the answer on that is no, because many of those breeds didn't exist before. It means that dog kind was on the ark, or whatever kind the Bible is alluding at. It doesn't define them, but it does allude to what we see in scientific evidence, adaptation and variation. We see different kinds. It doesn't tell us every kind that is on there, but it says that every kind is on there. So my guess would be horse kind is there, but not every breed of horse necessarily. That said, three boys on a boat, imagine the horse races they could have had if they'd have had a bunch of breeds of horses. Every kind, tiger kind, whatever that came from, elephant kind, whatever that came from, my guess, though, would be elephant kind and tiger kind are different. But the Bible mimics what we often call microevolution, but variation and adaptation. What doesn't fit with Scripture, though, because of the use of kinds, is the idea of common descent. Mankind is unique. Man and kinds are distinct creation. You need to make sure your origin story of the earth fits that. Man is not of common descent of every other critter. The Bible doesn't allow with that without dismantling what it says. While we're on the subject of science, what about the debate over a local flood or global flood? It's true, some Christians accept the concept of a local flood. Typically, it comes in the form of anthropologically universal. Universal, that means include all of mankind, but it was geographically local. There are many Christians that believe that. My problems with the idea of the local flood, and it's not fair, quiet, I'm not giving anybody else a chance to respond. Please don't interrupt me right now. But here's my issue. You can take it up with me in a week when I get back. First, why a boat and not a move? If it's local, just move them. We're going to see that with Abraham later on. Second, there's a promise not to flood, which becomes problematic, in my opinion, if it isn't global. For example, recently see India yesterday and Texas. If it's not global, then God's word seems in question because we have many traumatic local floods of significant size. Third, what about the specific details and numbers? There's some numbers that matter. 720, it says the waters rose 20 feet. I understand there's an answer to that. 8-4, it places the final destination and particular location of time and history. That matters. And it's the mountains of Ararat, not necessarily Mount Ararat itself. But fourth, and I think this is often the biggest issue, and I am not somebody who hates science. If I hadn't become a pastor, I was going to science. My dad, before becoming a pastor, was a lab scientist. His two degrees in science. My family likes science. My son loves it. It's my oldest. That's his best subject in school. But fourth, and I think this is the biggest, why? Especially since there is evidence for global flooding, scientific evidence for global flooding. Why are we so quick to abandon the truth of Scripture when it becomes spectacular And that spectacular characteristic causes scientists to start to squirm. Why? If nothing is impossible with God, why does a scientist becoming uncomfortable make us shake? 
I don't mean we shouldn't look for great scientific answers. We should. One of my points is going to be that God is not against science. But why do we panic just because a scientist says we should? We have the God who created the God who does impossible things. Scripture has no fault with science at all. But since they are people, the sinfulness of scientists will find plenty of fault with Scripture. We need to recognize that truth. I don't mean all scientists. There are many great Christians who are scientists. Don't mash those words together. It means something different. There are many scientists who are Christians. They love God. They love his word. And they don't all agree with me on this, and I'm okay with that. As long as they aren't just panicking because somebody else is scared by Scripture. If they think it fits what Scripture says and fits the science, and I disagree with them, that means two people in the body of Christ disagree. When was the last time that happened? Give it 10 minutes after the service, if that. You'll disagree over coffee, trust me. And I don't just mean talking over coffee. I literally mean over the coffee itself. You'll disagree. We do that as Christians. Speaking to scientists in a sermon, Alistair Begg once said, these, quote, these truths do not fight for acceptance on the basis of your scientific abilities. End quote. That is a hard sentence, but it is a good one. And scientists, I don't mean to offend you. Please, before you take off from the church mad because of me, come have a conversation with me. I love this topic. I work with teens that hear from scientists all the time, science teachers all the time. The flood is not a particular hobby of mine, but I love the discussion. Ultimately, the fight between science and scripture comes down to a point made by Alan Ross in his commentary, Creation and Blessing. It's the second time, by the way, that I'm, I'm using something from commentaries. The chiasm is the first. You need to stop and read a commentary from time to time. They will catch some things you don't. My guess is most of you have not spent a year studying the flood in your lifetime. To write a commentary, those guys probably did. They might catch a few things you miss when you're a little bleary-eyed in the morning, still waking up with your coffee and you read the, the flood account. Go read a commentary. Don't put the commentary on scripture level, but go read how other people interacted with the amazing God that we had. But here's the point. This is not a quote. It's my summary of it. But here's the point. And it happens to be a point our culture is rebelling against. God disagrees with us that we can live our lives for our own pleasure rather than in a relationship with God and for his glory. That's the issue. I don't believe in the flood because I want to live my way. For most people, that's the issue. Not necessarily everyone, but for most people. So let me read, and I'm, I'm going to read this through, and then I'll wrap things up. I mean that in a longer sense than you probably want me to. But Genesis 7, 11 through 8, 14, a lot of reading. Don't zone out with me. Follow along in your Bible or on the screens if it's up there. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. And rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. 
They have with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the, the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Everything living that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. There weren't any stowaways either, by the way. That, that was wrong in the movie too. Verse 24. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month, and on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground, but the dove could find no peace to set its feet, place, excuse me, no place to set its feet because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day, of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. Be amazed. God is powerful. The flood story should not be so familiar to you because we start teaching it as little kids because it has animals and a rainbow. That you start trivializing it. It is not a kid's story. The blog I read last week is 100% correct. People are dying. Everybody except for Noah and his family. Animals are dying. 
all of them that are not on the ark. The earth is being transformed as it gets flooded, and we don't even know what that means. We can speculate. Next time you want to find out, I don't recommend this actually, but flood your house and sit in it for a year and find out how your house changes. You will not want to live there anymore. The world's affected. That gets us to the next point. Not only should you be amazed, you should be sobered. Sin is costly. Think of the animals that died and don't get offended by the God who has the right to take their life. Be offended by the sin that sacrifices them. These are things that God made and called good. And humanity's sinfulness destroys it. We weren't the only ones that took a death sentence out of the garden. Animals did. We affected them, be sobered also by the fact that humanity is frail. All it took was God's decision to end it, or mostly end it, to restore it, to reboot it. That's it. He wipes everybody out. I already crept into Genesis 8, 15 and beyond, but this is, this is what happens. Everybody comes off the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. We're going to stop there. Noah comes off the ark. They get the same command, be fruitful and multiply, which of course we've actually obeyed, except we actually don't. We fight that one too. But he worships. This is what sets Noah apart from others. He worships God. Think about this for a minute. There were animals that were preserved for a year plus on the ark to have their life taken the minute they came off the ark to God's glory. That's pretty amazing. That's also why some of them, God said, take seven pairs, not just one pair. Some of them will be for food. We'll see that next week. Some of them will be for sacrifice, and some of them will be to survive. But the story doesn't end there. The flood account isn't actually over. Noah worships and God is pleased, but the story is not finished. We'll finish it next week. But what are we to make of the flood? How do we keep it from just being a cute story that we tell our kids, leaving out some of the gory details? And I think we should keep telling them. And I do think there's an appropriate time to leave out details, an appropriate age to include details. Let me end with a long list of things that the flood account tells us about God. It's a wonderful six-point application. But I'm almost finished. First, and this is the important starting point from last week, God hates sin. And we must too. God hates sin and he pours his wrath out upon it. Second, God, not people, is the main character of this and every story in Scripture. God remembers Noah. Noah built the ark, but God is the main character. Genesis is the story not of man, but of God's redemptive plan as told through the line of Adam, through the line of Noah, through the line of Abraham, through the line of Jacob. Jacob. 
and ultimately through the line of David and through Christ. God is the story. God is the main character. Always be paying attention to what God is doing, even when, like the flood and the story of Esther, he doesn't seem to be the prominent, prominent character. God is the main character. Third, God is sovereign. We need to be okay with this. God is sovereign over life and death. He has the right to take our life at any point. He is God and we sin. He has that right. It is painful because we weren't made to die. We were made to live. But God is sovereign over life and death. He is sovereign over creation. He can do with it what he wills. He is sovereign over history. So in its bleakest moments, don't panic. God is in control still. And his happiest moments, by all means, celebrate. But a caution in your defense of man's choice and man's will. Never undermine God's sovereignty. You've gone too far if man's choice eliminates God's sovereignty. There's a theology called open theology. Open, well, just open theology. Open theism, excuse me. Where God doesn't know and God might not be in control and it has no place with scripture. It is incorrect. It is trying to make sense of some things, but it is wrong. Fourth, God does miracles. He is powerful and in control. And just because you claim a miracle doesn't mean it actually happened. Sometimes Christians go nuts and the world stops believing us because we call childbirth miraculous. Childbirth is not miraculous. It is natural. God's providential over it, but that's not miraculous. Babies aren't little angels either. They're wonderful people. Please stop calling them angels. <laughs> Take them home. You'll find out very quickly they aren't. But God does miracles, and if you have no place for the miraculous, then that means you have no place for salvation, a miracle, and resurrection, a miracle, and we have a big problem then. If you want to throw out the flood story because it's uncomfortable, then you also have to flow out, throw out salvation and the cross and an empty tomb. Because if God can't flood the earth, God can't save the earth. Both are miracles. That in mind, God is not opposed to science or the physical world. It is science. It is engineering that built the boat. God didn't pop it into existence, but he could have. Think about that. As Noah's building the ark, why didn't you just make this thing? If you can flood the earth, make the boat. What am I doing? Especially when he's fighting with his three sons, and you know it happened. Or when he smashes his hand with a hammer. God is not against science, engineering, built the boat. Geography places the resting place of the ark. And if it's ever found, archaeology will discover it. God restores the physical world then, and he's going to restore it in the future. He doesn't just obliterate it. He could have just gone, boom, no earth, we're starting on Mars. Noah, you're the first astronaut. He could have done that. He didn't, but he could have. God is that powerful. 
But know this. God does not oppose science, but know this. God is above and not subservient to science or physical laws. He created them. He's not bound by them. And finally, and the point, God remembers, God saves, God redeems, God restores. It was God that covered Adam's nakedness after the fall with the shedding of blood of an animal. It was God that preserved Cain after he murdered his brother. There's no death penalty then because God put it put a protection over Cain. It is God that remembers a helpless man, his family and their floating zoo and he protects them for over a year in the midst of disaster, catastrophe. It is God that floods and it is God that dries out and it is God that restores the earth. And it is Christ that is on the cross. God remembers. God saves. God redeems. Once again, it is God and not man that takes care of man's sin problem. We saw that in the garden. We see that with the ark. But ultimately, the ark will prove to be no real solution, which is what we'll look at next week. Let's pray. Lord, mighty and holy, you are so worthy of praise. And so we sing to you. We sing your praises, for you are amazing and wonderful. We sing your praises, for you are just, even though we struggle with that sometimes, at least when your justice lands on us in a moment. We praise you, for you are loving and gracious. We praise you because of the cross. Amen.